0: I want everybody to feel like they have a place. I know I have a place. Even though someone had may have made me feel like I didn't have a place. I know I had a place. You just was sit you just laid your coat on it and your bag on it. <laughs> and I say, just move your bag so that I can sit in my seat. And we can we can do this. We can do this as a collective. You know, not as a replacement, but as, you know, this full body, this gumbo, this, you know. Of all of us together moving
1: forward. This is another episode of COVID Conversations. I'm Jonathan Weiler. I'm a professor in the curriculum and global studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I'm Matt Andrews.
2: I'm a professor in the Department of History here at UNC Chapel Hill.
1: Today, we spoke with Karen Slack, a internationally renowned opera singer.
2: Just a few of the highlights, and I'm gonna have to keep this brief because as I was reading over the highlights, I could go on for the entire 30 minutes. But Karen has performed in Verde's Aida with the Austin Opera, in Falstaff with the Arizona Opera, uh, the West Coast premiere of Terence Blanchard's Champion, which we hope to talk about a little bit, uh, with the San Francisco Opera, Porgy and Bess at the Met. Uh, in, In addition, Karen portrayed a featured role as one of the opera divas in Tyler Perry's movie and soundtrack for Colored Girls. That may be a film that some of the students who are listening um, are familiar with. Uh, Karen is also the host of the Facebook live show Kiki Conversations, where she engages in weekly discussions with artists in the opera and the classical and the the Broadway fields.
1: We spoke to Karen about her art, how she just hones her craft as a performer, and also about the context in which we're living, the context of COVID, and of course, the context of the post-George Floyd world, in which really this unprecedented reckoning with racism is taking place, a reckoning which has very much suffused the world of opera and performing arts. And that's something that Karen had a lot of interesting things to say about.
2: Yeah, Jonathan, I was so interested in this notion of one's voice and she talked about using her voice as an opera singer in this particular moment. She talked about using her voice as a black woman in the United States and she just talked about the importance of using one's voice during these, you know, twin pandemics of of COVID and, and and, and racism. Uh, we talked generally about the effects of COVID on the fine arts, the performing arts, arts like opera. We even talked about the links between opera and boxing. So if you think that's something you might be interested in, actually I think you should be interested in these links. We talk about those things as well.
1: But it was all just a joy to speak with her.
2: Jonathan, you and I have been talking to Karen and we've got a sense of her voice over Zoom. But now let's take a moment and get a sense of Karen performing her craft. Karen, thank you so much for joining and speaking with us today.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be invited.
2: Uh, Karen, we usually begin our our podcast by just getting a sense of the general biography of our our guests. Uh, you're joining us from Philadelphia, but you're from Philadelphia. Uh, We've read in your in your biography. So, how does a girl from Philly? Go to performing on opera stages all around the world. Can you give us sort of a, a, a thumbnail sketch of, of that evolution?
0: Sure. I mean, Philadelphia is a, a, a thriving, rich music city. It's always been, you know, we have the oldest opera house in the world, the Academy of Music, and of course, Philly Orchestra, Opera Philly, Curtis Institute of Music. So, music is in the air here. <laughs> along with our rich history of hip hop culture and soul music and all these things. So growing up, I didn't, um, I didn't aspire to be an opera singer. I wanted to be a veterinarian (laughs) pretty much my whole life until I discovered that I had this big sound, this big voice, you know, I always sang growing up just, you know, casually at home. And um, when I was in middle school, my teacher encouraged me to join the choir. And so I joined choir and then she pushed me to audition for the high school for performing arts in Philly. And I got in on the spot after the audition singing The Greatest Love of All, Whitney Houston's version. And uh, my high school teacher introduced me to opera. I was 14 years old, hearing Maria Callas, Jesse Norman, of course, and I, for the first time, recognized a voice that sounded like mine. You know, I didn't have a gospel, big, heavy, kind of like soulful uh, voice. It was very high and loud and, you know, head voice that that, that kids have, but very strong. And, um, at 16 years old, I went to see, uh, Denise Graves, sing Carmen with opera Philadelphia. And I knew then that I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. Um, it was just tremendous to see a beautiful black woman on the stage and to know that it was possible that i could do that someday and so i took voice lessons and piano lessons and went to the university at hartford for one year and then i won this major competition in new york city called the rosa poncel international competition rosa poncel was a great american dramatic soprano and uh I won $50,000, I was 18 years old, and I moved to New York City, studied privately. And that's really where it started to take off for me in a way of really believing that I could actually do have a career in opera.
2: Hmm. Could I just follow up on one of those, I think that, that moment where you go to the opera And you see, as you described her, a beautiful black woman on the stage performing. When did that become possible for, you know, when you were a girl, uh, when did that become possible for people to actually see? Do you have a sense of the general story of of, of desegregation in the American opera world? Well, I mean, (laughs) I think we're still
0: having these conversations about representation and access to Uh, classical music and to the highest levels of the career you know the higher you go up the less diversity there is particularly with black artists Um, I think you know when you're thinking about black people when when, uh, Marian Anderson was at her peak black people weren't even able to sing in opera houses in America you right. know, you're talking about 1950. I think she made her Metropolitan Opera debut in 1955. And she had already been singing for 20 years in Europe. You know, right. black people integrated opera houses in Europe much sooner than in America. You know, I think Latentine Price made her debut in 57 or 58. I i can't remember. 61, 61 at the Metropolitan Opera, you know, but she had already been singing in Vienna, in Berlin, you know? And so, and then there are many unsung artists. Robert McFerrin, Bobby McFerrin's father, you know, should have had the career that his voice um, lent itself to. But again, Black people could not sing in opera houses. And so... so-
2: Names like Paul Robeson and Marian Anderson are the the exceptions, the names that, that we know. But this is not the norm for African-American artists. Not no. in
0: America. Not in America. Yeah. In Germany, uh-huh. yes. Yes, but not, not, not in America. And still, to this day, they're not enough.
1: Yeah. And, and Karen, just to follow up on that, I, I know we're going to, we'll talk more about for lack of a better way of saying it, this post-George Floyd moment and how it impacts your world. But I'm wondering over the past say 10 years prior to May of 2020, was there, has there been more of a change or an evolution or has it mostly just been a handful of black stars like yourself in an otherwise very overwhelmingly white world?
0: Well, I have to say, in many of the, as I call them, the gatekeepers, the people, the decision makers, I am not a star and by any stretch of imagination. You know, my talent lends itself to having, I think, a major international career, but there have been barriers there for various reasons. I mean, you know, there is a long stretch between um, a Leontine Price and a Grace Bunbury to a Jesse Norman, <laughs> 80s, 90s, 2000s, to a Denise Graves to a Larry Brownlee now, Eric Owens, who are considered the big sin- international superstars, there's a big gap, you know. Um, and we're just talking about sing singers on stage. We're not even talking about uh, administrators, general directors, artistic administrators. Like there's such a lack of representation for the people who get to make the decisions about whom get who gets to be on the stage. They just don't exist. There is there hasn't been a black there's one black general director uh wayne brown in michigan opera theater and it's been 27 years since we had a black woman be up uh, to run uh to be artistic director in an american opera house 27 years for a woman
2: I th- one of the uh articles that um elias sent us t- talked about um how the the Met has presented I've got the numbers here three hundred and six operas in its one hundred and thirty seven year history and none of them by a black comp- composer although it sounds like that's about to be hopefully rectified maybe when we come out of COVID and this may get us to to your next project so we can we can get to that toward toward the end. I just yeah.
1: Matt just, let me just add here yeah, that that first black composer who we know is Karen's dear friend Terrence Blanchard. Who she has worked with previously, so it sounds like that will be a monumental event when it when it finally happens.
0: Yes, I mean I I spoke about this and on a panel um, at a I think University of Michigan and Mr. Shirley Joe Shirley, tremendous, very very famous uh, African American tenor who broke a lot of barriers um, in his career, uh, spoke about. Terence Terence's opera not being the first black opera I think at the Met, but there was there was another uh, opera that that um, the Met presented, but again not by not produced by a black composer. <laughs> it they were it was bought in as a tour, so the Met has not no. They, so this I would see. be the first time uh, that Terence um, Terence. Blanchard will be the first African American composer to have a, a opera produced by the Metropolitan Opera, which is "Fire Shut Up in My Bones." Um, it's based on the story of the wonderful author and columnist, a uh, New York Times columnist Charles Blow, which was premiered last summer at the Opera Theater of St. Louis.
2: And you were in that production, correct?
0: I was. I was. I created the role of Billy, uh, which is a Charles's mom and I created that role from the ground up from the first note to the last note <laughs> Terrence actually uh, I was doing a champion his first opera and right. in and San Francisco and he approached me he said you know I'm writing this new, new opera and I want you to to uh, be in it I want you to play Billy and uh, the people in St. Louis didn't know who I was, which is strange. I've been around for a while, and so he really pushed for me to to be a part of that premiere, literally from the beginning. And uh, I owe Terrence a debt. of grat- I mean, I I'm so thankful for our relationship, our friendship, our musical relationship. You know, he built, he he wrote that role for me, and I'm forever indebted to him for the opportunity someone who's not in this world and not in a classical world someone who's out from the outside you know saw me and heard me and said I want you where people in this industry don't always see and hear in a way it's it's very interesting that's a conversation for a whole other (laughs) podcast
2: well and then for our our student listeners who don't know Terrence Blanchard, a famous jazz musician. Um, and then, of course, maybe most famous for being known as the person who does the music for the films for for, for Spike Lee's films or many of, of Spike Lee's. Almost. Yes.
1: Yeah. I, I just a quick comment, actually, about what you just said, Karen, about Ter- Terrence identifying you and then giving you that opportunity. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the great journalist and mastermind of the 1619 Project, who's a UNC alum, she graduated from the journalism school got her masters here in 2003 she was on a panel at UNC last fall cuz she's helped initiate this Ida B Wells project to bring more black journalists into you know positions of significance in the field and she said you know this is not a diversity project you know this isn't about sort of just having more black or non-white faces for the sake of it. This is the industry needs that because otherwise it won't have the stories or the experience or the perspective that will make journalism better. And so I just, you know, I just in terms of your connection to Terrence is, you know, it's it's not about just checking a box. It's about lifting up the entire field by opening it to talent that previously had been foreclosed.
0: Absolutely. You must have it, you know, not diversity for diversity's sake, but diversity because someone that has always had a seat at the table will not have the same ideas as someone who's never been invited to the table. They don't see the world the same way. They don't have the same experiences. And if we are who we say we are which are the truth tellers the storytellers you know then we must let everybody come in and tell the stories cuz it's not about oh you're a white guy and I'm a black woman and I'm just telling stories for my community no if my heart is broken and you've had your heart broken then that means that we have a connection we have a story you know we we have a, a similarity you know we we must look beyond I always say, you know, when you drink a cappuccino, what's the good part? It's not the foam. It's past the foam. We need to stop drinking the damn foam and get to the good part. Get to the the, the meat and potatoes, the middle. You know, we we have to stop
1: that. Not you know. that we don't want meat and potatoes in our cappuccino, per se. But we, <laughs> no. Yeah. no, we don't. We, that's but, but, but 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 the point is well taken. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. I know yeah. when
0: I said it, I was like, oh, my God, that's crazy.
1: <laughs>
0: I meant to say we must get to the, the espresso. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, Karen, so we, we want to address a few topics today. Um, but one of them is the effects of, of COVID on our society. As you know, this, this podcast is called COVID Conversations, and it's part of the Carolina Away program where Carolina students, uh, undergraduate and, and graduate level, are exploring the effects of COVID in, in, in different ways on our society. Um, and so I was hoping we could talk a little bit about the effects of COVID on the field of the performing arts, um, maybe opera specifically. I, I would imagine this is a bleak story, um, but c- can you step back and, and assess the state of the performing arts in the United States generally at this time, in this moment of COVID?
0: Well, it's bleak, but we're not defeated. You know, art must go on, art must continue. It will continue. Uh, it'll just look different than the other side. It'll be different, which, you know, honestly, I think is a good thing. It's good It's good for everyone. Uh, personally, yes, I've lost work. I've lost a lot of money. I lost a lot of opportunities as the, as my career was actually really having it's another life, you know, with these new works and these things. And then everything just stopped, you know, I I had just uh, been a part of the extended performances at the Metropolitan Opera of of their very successful production of Porgy and Bess. After, shortly after that, I, I performed four recitals, literally in a week and a half after leaving New York And then COVID happened. I had sung a big concert up in Massachusetts with orchestra and flying home the next day, though everything shut down. So that Sunday I'm going home and Monday we all went on lockdown, right? And so, you know, Europe is closed, uh, Asia's closed, America's closed. And all of a sudden, all of these opera singers and all these theaters are Black, and no money is flowing, companies are refusing to pay. Uh, some companies are only paying percentages of um contracts. Broadway is shut down and no one and everyone's crippled. You know, and interestingly enough, I what I've found five months on the other side is that those of us who have always had to hustle and grind and come up with interesting ways to make art are the ones that are thriving the most versus some of the most successful artists who have sort of had it. I don't want to say easy because that's not the right word to say, but just you know, has had the path. They're booked out three to five years in advance and they're singing the same roles over and over again. They've not had to be as uh, creative in ways to make money, I have suffered the most. You know, um, if you had 90 to... $150,000 of contracts, and you don't have them anymore. And it's all gone.
1: Karen, just to follow up to Matt's question about the impact of this on your your business, specifically, in your world, are there recording opportunities to do, do folks make albums? Is there a way to sell your music without or is live performance really most of the ball game for you. Yes.
0: Like, yeah. Just like, uh, I would to say pop artists in a way, like live music is the bread and butter. That's where you make your, that's where you make most of your money. I mean, listen, there's such a small percentage of the one percent of classical artists, particularly vocalists, that get to make, that have recording contracts. You know, that was very much in the 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 different a different uh, century in that way. You know what I mean? Like that's very really twentieth century. Like most people do not have recording contracts and they are not lucrative. They don't make money. But what we found in this time period. Is that we have had to fast track as an art form into learning this whole, all of this stuff: how to record, what microphone to use, you know, how to use Zoom and how to how to use how to you know, uh how do you say uh do voice lessons on FaceTime and all of these things? How do we do virtual offerings? Like this, this last several months have been a crash course in how to move the art form of classical music into the 21st century, particularly opera.
2: Karen, I was really interested, just now you were saying that you thought that the world of the fine arts, the world of opera will be different um, on the other side of COVID. And and not just different, but you hinted that maybe it's going to be better. Can I ask what what types of changes you have in mind when you you think that?
0: Well, first off, uh, the idea that these massive productions and these big, you know, the concert halls are the only way opera can be produced is now false. You know, it, it can be done smaller scale. It can be done with smaller audiences and still have the impact out of necessity. We are learning that (laughs) it's going to be the only way for probably at least a year and a half to two years you know i think this filling up these 3000 seat houses to the brim you know which wasn't really happening anyway at this point because of the economy <laughs> you know um we understand that we're going to have to go back to chamber music go back to you know recital series and all of these all of these things but um it's good because you will have a more of an intimate relationship with your audience you know and we will be able by vir- virtually to reach a bigger audience to reach an audience, you know, that expands past the, the, you know, classical audience or people who like, you know, oh, listen to it in behind, you know, as, as, um, you know, mood music in the back or, you know, the TikTok singers are on TikTok and Instagram. And, you know, we can reach the entire world now virtually, and it's going to change our industry. It's going to, make people want to come into our world which we desperately need again about diversity but there's diversity of thought diversity of taste you know we we need that we need people in theater and hollywood and sports like i would love to have a sporting uh, that kind of sporting element into the classical music world like it used to be in the old school where people would like you know uh scream out loud for things that they loved and you know cheered for the for the good guy and booed the bad guy you know like and not that we need to totally get away from our you know very beautiful cultured kind of art form but it needs to have needs to relax a little bit you know what i mean
2: We are speaking with the opera star Karen Slack and talking to her about the role of the performing arts in the age of COVID and the links between the performing arts and activism in contemporary America.
1: involved in a panel discussion, I guess, it was was it in July? Oh, that feels like last year, yeah. Yeah, COVID time is disorienting. Um, With several other well-known people in the opera world, black people in the opera world, just talking about how COVID and George Floyd, the aftermath of the George Floyd killing is prompting this rethinking, I guess, Correct me if I'm wrong, originally uh, the LA Opera House had asked that a performance take place, and instead uh, the counter proposal was, why don't we have a conversation about how these sort of major forces in society are affecting people of color? Um, so yeah, So, can, can can I guess first, can you talk about just Maybe a little bit how that came together, and then second, kind of your perspective on on just that experience and the reaction to it.
0: Yes, well, my wonderful sister friend um, and colleague Janae Bridges, beautiful metal soprano, uh, was asked to give, I think, a virtual concert recital. You know, what like many companies are asking artists to do and she thought because of the magnitude of the moment that that was not appropriate for her. And so she, I think there had already been talks prior to this, but she um, offered LA the option to do a panel of to bring in artists. And so she called all of her friends, you know, she texted me and it literally happened in like two days and said, you know, can you do this? Are you interested? And so she asked Larry Brownlee, myself, Morris Robinson, Julia Bullock, uh, Russell Thomas, you know, all of us are in the same age group and very impactful in our careers where we are, you know, very outspoken on issues. And so the panel was brilliant. And I just had no idea that it was going to morph into this action this change action this thing of like people from all over the world finally listening to the conversations that we all have with each other privately (laughs) and um I'm so thankful for Janae for inviting me uh to that table because the world needed to hear that although all of us have some semblance of success that we have, there's another side to it that no, when you're out in the world, no one cares that you're an international opera singer. No one cares that you have five degrees, whatever that is, or that you speak languages. All they see is your color, you know, and or, the, or your gender, you know, all of us are very accomplished in our own way. And to, to hear us speak so openly And so raw, you know, listen, we were all texting each other literally hours before that or the night before just checking in. Like, are you as nervous as I am? Because again, we were having our private conversations out in the open, but it was necessary.
2: One of the things that the massive slowdown brought on by by COVID and then with the killing of george floyd and brianna taylor and then the shooting of jacob blake and it just goes on it, one of the things that is prompted in me and so many people that i know is this moment of self reflection where we're asking ourselves what good am i doing in the world right now and and karen please believe me when i say i am not challenging you in your craft when i ask you this this question but i'm just really interested in 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 your in your answer here what do you see as the value of the fine arts in this particular moment, in the value of your voice uh, at this particular moment?
0: I feel like my voice is so incredibly important at this moment and so incredibly strong in this moment. Um, Not just my voice, my singing voice. Yes, which is beautiful. Yes, which is moving but my voice my mind my soul it's all attached you know i mean during this COVID over time I, I created my show kiki conversations where i sit and talk to people and having these hard conversations and i cannot tell you how impactful those conversations have been for the industry because people in the industry tell me and how thankful they are that i had the courage to get up and to to talk to people about the hard things to talk to important people about the hard things you know and that's just that's just an extension of my singing of my craft you know i it is important for people to see me in all of my beauty and all of my blackness and all to stand there and deliver all of the emotions and that does not um in this time, it's even more important because people need to be touched. They need to be moved. They need to, you know, we need music. We need people who have the courage to stand up and say, yes, my heart is broken, but I'm going to still be of service to this art form, service to this industry, because we are in service. And that's how I look at everything that I do. So it's not about me. It's about me in being of service to the people. So the fine art is important because we are, you know, it takes a lot of hours and a lot of money to be able to put that bow in that string and make the most beautiful, heartfelt sound. No one can tell me that that's not important.
1: Karen, those white gatekeepers who you, you mentioned earlier, and I know it's early and it's hard to know how things are going to unfold. Do you have a sense that some of those white gatekeepers are listening and open in ways that were not previously true? Are you having are you hearing different things? Are you having different kinds of conversations than has previously been the case?
0: Yes, more than ever. Absolutely. Like I said, I get messages. I you know, my colleagues and I talk about well, who called you today, who asked you to speak on a panel, who who asked you for your time. You know, some people they just want an hour to speak to you and say, What well, I don't know what to do. This is the moment. This is I don't think we'll ever be as open as we are now. And I hope it stays that way. Um, I really think that companies are scrambling, particularly after the fiasco of the blackout day with the, while the companies put the black, you know, the black out their social media. Listen, if it doesn't reflect your back office, then it doesn't mean anything. If you've not already been doing this work to put a black, you know, uh, uh, on your social media, it's just ridiculous. And And I understand that they, you know, Try to do what they thought was the right thing. And some companies uh, got it right, but most did not. And they didn't understand why they got the backlash. Again, you have to keep doing your work. You have to understand that people haven't already been watching you. See, people don't realize that. The companies don't realize that. There are people who have already been watching and seeing the things that you've not done. And so, um, you know, I, I believe that, that a lot of people are wanting to right the wrongs and wanting to to do better and wanting to do more than just putting more people of color on their stage you know they you know i portland opera sue dixon who's the general director reached out to me and gave me an artistic invite invited me to to be their one of their artistic advisors for their company and that's amazing she listened to the la opera panel she gave me a seat at the table which is what i asked for you know and it's not the only seat i've been invited to at this moment And so um, I think people want to do better, but I think that it has to be top. It has to come from the top. It has to be, you know, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, Metropolitan Opera, the big international opera companies to lead the way. They'll probably be the hardest to pull along. It'll be the middle, it'll be the smaller companies, I think, who want to do the impactful work. But again, the leaders have to step up, the agencies. that represent artists have to step up.
1: Karen, since you just referred to a seat at the table, I just want to briefly mention a great quote from you from the LA Opera panel where you said, I'm not asking for your seat. I'm asking you to move over so I can sit in mine. I I appreciated that framing of what's at stake right now
0: yeah i mean i you know this whole thing of and i'm sure listen i'm i'm realist i keep it real anybody who knows me i understand i'm sure white people are very very afraid that they are no longer going to have the control That they are no longer going to be in these positions you know that everyone's going to be thrown out and and replaced and that's to me personally that is not the answer i want everybody to feel like they have a place i know i have a place even though someone had may have made me feel like I didn't have a place, I know I had a place. You just, was sit- you just laid your coat on it and your bag on it. <laughs> and I say, just move your bag so that I can sit in my seat and we can, we can do this. We can do this as a collective, you know, not as a replacement, but as, you know, this full body, this gumbo, this, you know, of all of us together moving forward. And then there are some people who don't want you to be there. Well, then I think we all need to get them out. Those are the people that need to be that need to, to be put out, are the ones who just want business as usual, who don't want any type of diversity, be it gender, race, with culture, whatever. We we need to work to get those people out and get to the real good work.
2: So Karen, um, Jonathan, and I would just have to ask you about this. We are both, um, maybe we shouldn't be boxing fans, but I think we would both admit that we are boxing fans. Uh, we are both historians of, of, of boxing. And so I, I have to ask about the opera champion that you performed in, an opera about the boxer Emil Griffith. And, and for um, th- those listening to the podcast who probably don't know who Emil Griffith um, is, he was a, a, a black middleweight, also a welterweight, I believe. Uh, From the U.S. Virgin Islands, but grew up in New York City. And I knew about him because he famously defeated another fighter, Benny Perrette, in a a nationally televised boxing match in New York City in 1962. And one of the things that is most famous about this fight is that Benny Perrette died from the injuries that he sustained in the ring that, that night. But there's more to the story than that. I mean, that maybe that story in and of itself is not worthy of an opera. But there's another side to this story. Could you maybe start by filling in the the details about the Emil Griffith Benny Perret story?
0: Yes. Well, um, as you guys are fans of boxing, so am I secretly, and of course, <laughs> and of course, Terrence is a huge, huge. Um, fan of boxing. And so when uh, Saint, OTSL, Opera Theater St. Louis, a- approached him about writing an opera about Katrina, he turned that opportunity down and decided to um, write an opera, write Champion. And um, the beautiful story about uh, Emil is, you know, he was, the, he. it was a Rags to Riches story, of course, and, you know, he suffered from dementia later on in his life, but that he was uh, homosexual. And at the time, during that time, you were not out in the late, in the fifties, you know, you couldn't be out. You couldn't love, you know, someone who was of the same sex. And so he always kept that hit that part hidden, but that he was quite the beautiful, a beautiful soul. Um, I, I played, uh, Imelda, Emile's mother, and which was the role was created by the fantastically amazing superstar soprano, Denise Graves uh Metal Soprano Denise Graves in St. Louis and they had a very special close relationship. And she really was the reason I think why Emile rose to to, you know, the success and the heights of boxing. But um there's a wonderful uh phrase that Emil sings in Champion you know is I kill a man and the world loves me but I love a man and the world wants to kill me mm-hmm. and when uh, when um, oh god I, that just takes me out every time but when Arthur Whitley sings that line it mm-hmm. just wrecks me it wrecks me you know because of course you know Benny K. Correa, he he's he's injured in the boxing match you know and he dies. And I think Emil never got over that. He was deeply, deeply affected by that injury of Benny Parrett and then him dying. And so it is a tremendous story. And I just wish that more opera companies did Champion. I know everyone's into Fire, and Fire is a beautiful story. And I, but I think Champion is such an amazing story and an important story to to hear about the struggles of black men and being gay and being you know successful and of course it's the, sort of the same premise of fire in a way and i keep telling terrence like they're gonna think that that's that that's your your bag you know that that's your whole like you'd love to tell those stories but again it's about telling all of the stories and champion, uh, yeah, champion is really special to me.
1: We we have a joke in teaching that we 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 just basically teach the same course over and over again, even if we call it something different. So, um, but so but Karen, uh, just just about the theatrics of that, was there was the fight itself portrayed in any way on stage? Yes,
0: act. So act the end of act one is, like, one of the most amazing act, fina- finales in opera, I think. It is... It, Terrence uh, perfects that showtime, you know, with the horns and everybody's singing line and how the chorus plays the the audience, you know, at the at the ring, at the, the uh, boxing match. And it's brilliant. It is brilliant. You leave wanting to, like run out and cheer you know but of course um, you know Benny gets knocked out or whatever and and then it go then the end goes into the finale goes back into oh, the older Emil because the opera is young Emil you see young Emil's journey but old Emil during his dementia is looking mm. from upstage at all of the action that's happening and so you know he says, talks about in his head it happens so fast um, something good turns into something that ha- that is so bad. And so that's kind of how the act, the act ends with, you know, him getting knocked out and then going back to old Emil and just going back to him as an old man. Always living with the regret of um, injuring Benny.
2: Well, I, I'm thinking... When I read about this this opera, and I've I've, I've got to see this now, I, I, it made me think of the famous boxing scenes in Martin Scorsese's film *Raging Bull*, um, where where the fights between Jake LaMotta and Sugar Ray Robertson, I mean, Robinson. If I remember this right, they're set to opera music. I think Scorsese plays opera music in the background. Um, so I'm I'm sort of struck by the potential intersection of these these two arts. The the manly art of boxing, as it was called in the 19th century, and then the art of of, of, of opera singing. Having been around both, do you see any links between these, these two art forms?
0: Yes, the grandeur, the blood, sweat, and tears, <laughs> the fighting yeah. in a different way. Absolutely. Sometimes I feel like I've been to war <laughs> at the end <laughs> of some of these um, operas or auditions or whatever the case may be depending on the situation but yeah i mean you know rocky flying high now you know they have the operatic voice and of course you know opera is to me the height of all emo- the it, it incorporates all the <laughs> art forms together of course and it is the height of all emotion
2: well, and, and people speak of boxing as being the height of all athletic forms, right? It's the it it's the rawest, it's the most emotional, it's the most naked of all the sport. That's that's super interesting. Yeah, thank you. There
0: we go. Exactly. I, I I think this might be the only boxing opera. I'm not really sure, but it might be. It's fine. Yeah. It, sh- it should it not that it should be, but champion
1: knocks it out the park. <laughs> Just a quick question about. Uh- Again, I I just don't know anything about this world. When you perform in Champion, does it do a run of several weeks? Is it a one-time event? What's the, just how how, how, how does that work? Well, you know, in America,
0: since everything is you know, funded by patrons. We don't have the luxury of running opera, having opera all year round, all the time, you know, doing 30 performances like in Europe of a particular piece. So um, I think when Champion made his debut at St. Louis, I think there might've been eight performances through this the summer because they have a summer festival from May to July first week of July. But when we did it in St. Louis, we did it at SF Jazz, which is the jazz, you know, the the company for uh San Francisco Jazz. And so we were able to use their stage and I think we did 7 or 8 shows, but that's not normal for opera. You know, the Metropolitan Opera can run something of course cuz they're a repertory house from August, September to May, um, so they can do 15, 20 performances of something. But in America, traditionally, in regional companies, you get between one, and if you're lucky, five performances of something, which is pretty high for most regional companies.
1: And then just a follow-up, how much time does your voice need to recover from one performance to the to the next
0: um i could i mean I, i've sung back-to-back performances like I, we could never do what broadway does eight shows a week that's just impossible for opera um and we don't use microphones so there's just no no way we can do that i i, I would say that one or two performances is or two to three performances back to back with no days off is terrible and um but i would say two days of rest between shows it's about right sometimes three is a little bit much four is definitely a lot um but i try to do scales and warm up between performances and it really depends on the show but oftentimes it's not your voice it's your mind and your body that need the rest you know if you're if you have if you are if you have technique a solid technique you should be able to sing every day you know, but the, the vocal cords, of course, the muscle musculature around it needs rest, but most of your body needs the rest.
1: That, that sounds like another parallel with boxing. Arguably, you just you just need more time between performance because of what it takes out of you.
0: Absolutely. And as you get older, you know, I'm, I'll be 45 on September twenty second, And um, I'm finding that I really need to lay down and take that time to rest myself much more than I did in my 20s. Listen, I, I started singing opera, you know, I started getting paid to sing opera in my very early 20s, because I started so soon, you know, I started training, and I'm 45. I mean, that's a lot of years. It's a lot of years and I had to remind myself like Karen, you know, when you don't remember things, I used to be able to like pick up a score, memorize it, learn it real quickly and, you know, go sing it. And now I have to really be more patient with myself. But, um, yeah, I think I like, I'm thank I am even so blessed to be even speaking to you guys at this moment about this art form. I feel so lucky. I feel so lucky when I, when I step back from it to go, wow, yeah, you did it. You're doing it. It's still happening. People are still wanting to hear you sing and wanting to talk to you and, you know, and through all of the things and COVID and all this stuff, like, wow, that's pretty freaking amazing.
2: Jonathan and I would like to bring in a a PhD student, Elias Gross, who's really the the mastermind here of putting all four of us together. Elias, thank you so much for for introducing us to, to Karen. Uh, we'd like to give you the opportunity to, to have your voice heard and, and uh, ask a question of Karen if you'd like to.
3: Sure, and thank you so much. I'm really happy to watch this conversation unfold and, and also just to have the relationship that I do with Karen to know such a fantastic artist for such a long period of time, like five or so years now at Ooh, least, I think. Yeah, for um, sure. I've, I've had the opportunity to see Karen sing with the Philadelphia Orchestra. I've had the opportunity to see Karen sing in a classroom to a group of girls um, to talk about what it means to be an opera singer and and to be this um, embodied vision of a reality and a future for them. And so I'm just always so grateful to pass you the mic whenever I get the chance, not that you need it, but you know. <laughs> um, but I guess I do have a question. In, in, in thinking about all of this and in thinking about all the roles that each of us play um, so my class that I bring to the Cove investigation series is about artistic futures um, specifically we're, we're thinking about this region that we're in in the American South but that means so many things and especially um, for you as a singer who's embodying different roles and you've played southern characters here and there and definitely worked in the south but um, so region here here or not um, thinking about this artistic future so after after all of this um, you've been doing the work other people are doing in the work what is what is something that you imagine as an artistic future after covid 19
0: um, that we definitely work with other art forms uh, that we open it up we open the, the canon up to be more inclusive um, like I said, more theater, more you know, pop music. Like that, we're doing more collaborations. That we bring opera and classical music to the people. That we take it out of the big theater consistently and bring it to the people. I mean, and I'm not just talking about coffee shops and you know, outreach things like that, you know, but that we remember that this is an art form to to be shared and not to be kept in a museum. It's not precious. It is beautiful. It is amazing, but it's not precious. It will not break. It will not be diluted if you let other people come and play in your sandbox. Like we need to, (laughs) we need we need to make that very very clear moving moving forward. Same with seats at the table. It's only it it only expands when we expand. You know. I hope that artists and singers uh, performers feel more empowered to speak truth. To call out things that are not right and to help and be of service to their art form and to and to be encouraged by gatekeepers and by powerful people in this industry to do that thing because we can do it all day but if they don't listen and they don't encourage us you know and support us we're gonna be right back where we are you know or it's always gonna be this battle this you know back and forth of wills empower and that's going to do nothing for anybody people will leave the art form people will you know it it it, it just won't won't be good so you know more empowerment more support more encouragement more expansion all of those things is what i wish for
1: karen thank you so much for joining us today this has just been a fascinating conversation and in a world that I personally really knew nothing about. So we, we really appreciate your taking the time to, to be with it's us. It's my
0: joy, my, my, thank you, my pleasure.
1: This has been another episode of COVID Conversations. Thank you to Rudy Colorado Mansfeld, Senior Associate Dean for Social Sciences and Global, whose idea this series was, Klaus Meyer, our great producer, Kristen Chavez in the College of Arts and Sciences Communications Office, for publicizing the podcast and providing, among other things, a transcript on covidconversations.unc.edu for those for whom it's better to consume the podcast that way. Elias Gross, who's a PhD student in musicology here at UNC. It is through his good graces and connections that we were able to speak with Karen today. So Elias, a special thank you for this episode. And we will look forward to seeing you next time.